show where the owls are not what they seem. Do you or have you ever watched Twin Peaks? The Late Night Alternative with Ian Lee. We could be dreaming and meeting each other in our dreams. On Talk Radio. that is don't you that was rick mail i'm Catherine boyle i've got mark serby in the uh studio with me is it serby or serby 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 but you know you you pronounce it quite poshly so i'll go with that it's <laughs> I can't fine help myself. I just dead posh. <laughs> now uh, you've written a book about rick mail mm-hmm. uh, usually you'd say why rick mail but uh, everyone loves rick mail yeah why not rick mail yeah this is the thing and also um it's weird to say, but nobody else, there's no other book out there about Rick Mail apart from his autobiography. Now, obviously, for people who have read that autobiography, it's an incredible piece of work, but it's it's written in the Dr. Rick Mail pan-global phenomenon, third-person perspective. I mean, it's a brilliant piece of work if you read it as a screenplay. Right. If you read it as an autobiography, it doesn't tell you anything. Like, everything in the entire world is down to Rick. Like, he, he, you know, just created the world, to be honest. And it's great, but I'm like, I, I want to read about how he got to how he was and his influences and all of the success and all of the failures as well. Because, you know, there's things that didn't work for him as well. And I'm like, well, I want to read that book. Maybe I should just write that book. So what, his book is more like him enjoying himself, talking about the man, the legend that he became? Uh, it, it's not even that, to be honest with you. <laughs> right. I mean, like, like there's there's breaks in the chapters where he's written a letter to, like, Thatcher or the Queen or just, you know, random people. And then there's breaks in the chapters of, of photos of uh, young ladies who are topless. <laughs> just, just for no reason, it just says bird topless or something. <laughs> and you're like, I mean, this is exactly what you want from a Rick Mail book. Mm-hmm. But for truth, for real truth, it's in there. Dig it out. But if you just want a straight story, you're not going to get it in that. But it's a it's a wonderful book. I mean, it's it's Rick through and through. I'm going to have to read that. When he uh, after he died, a load of those letters that he wrote to people came out, didn't they? In some really lovely moments, I don't know, disguised with abuse. And uh, I was talking to one of the um, producers, and he said, oh, "I love Rick Mail. My girlfriend had a mad crush on him, and she got a book signed by him, and he always signed it, Love and Violence." <laughs> That's, I mean, that's just one of the things that he would write. You know, the thing is, uh, he was very good with, with writing things like that. You know, if you were a male, you would get roundly... Um, well, we can't say the words on air at all, what he would write on there. But, you know, you would get that and you'd go, yeah, that's absolutely Rick. And then if if you were a female, you'd get something slightly naughty, something slightly perverted, maybe. And, and to be honest with you, I imagine most females would be like, yeah, I'm OK with that, it's Rick. Because the thing is, and I don't know if you'll agree with this on uh, or not, but Rick was a very handsome man. Yeah, very sexy, and it's not even about what he looked like. It, no. He had a charm. Yeah, absolutely. I interviewed loads and loads of people for the book as well who worked with Rick, and one of them was Andy Dillator, who went out on tour with him in the early 90s. And he said, when we were on tour, he said, obviously, I would uh, do the first half of the... Uh, of the 
stand-up comedy and then Rick would come on and do the, the second half. He said and afterwards there would always be like a gaggle of women on the, at the stage door waiting. He said, and you always knew, he said, I would go out first. He said, then Rick would come out. And he said, there was this 30-second moment where the women didn't recognise him because he'd been on stage pulling these faces, gurning and everything mm-hmm. else like that and flicking the V sign and whatever else. And then he would come out as this wonderfully, you know, Covered man, lovely, handsome, and everything. And they'd go, Well, that's not him. And then they'd look away and they'd go, hang, hang, hang on a second, that is him. Hang on a sec. So they'd all rush to the stage. But there was this 30 second gap where it was like, That's not Rick Mayo. But it was. Because the person who came out, what was sort of um, smaller in an acting sort of sense. Yeah. Yeah. Is that the real Rick Mayo then? A more shy person or? Only a few people really knew the real Rick Mayo family and those who got really close to him. I think that's the thing. Um, There is, certainly with Rick, there was an on and off button. I think he was on as soon as he left the house, but that was no bad thing at all. Um, You know, the the stories that I've been told, which some of them are in the book, you know, happily to print them. Some of them I couldn't print at all, to be honest. Um, Were just really good, fun stories. Like he would be out with a few people and he'd be like, uh, people would want his autograph and everything else like that. And he'd be with somebody trying to do some work. He'd go, oh, this is my lover or this is, you know, this is my son or something like that. Just to make it really fun. That was the thing. So I think he was always on, but he knew when to be off. That was the thing. Like, you know, a lot of celebrities and a lot of famous people who are in the entertainment industry don't know how to switch off which is an unfortunate thing and Rick knew I think he had that immediate switch that when he was out in public he was Rick Mayle when he was at home he was Richard Mayle right and and it's a big difference so when he was out in public he was who the public expected to meet um I guess so. It was a bit of a defence thing because he was so outrageous, people would shrink back a little bit, maybe. No, I think that was just Rick. (laughs) I I just think, I mean, the man oozed confidence. That was the beauty about him. And I think that radiated to everybody else. Like, certainly, I think that people who grew up watching either The Young Ones or Bottom, I would imagine most of them turn around and say, My humour has been influenced by Rick more than anybody else and probably my confidence as well. And I think that's such a great thing is that you can look at somebody like Rick and never have met the man yet understand how powerful it is to have that confidence and everything going through him. And, you know, he wasn't afraid to stand up to everybody. I mean, there's photos online of him standing up to policemen, you know, and you're like... Only he could get away with that, really. And I think that's the beauty of Rick and still is the beauty of Rick's legacy that that confidence still comes through. That any time you watch it, you know, obviously you were playing that song earlier, yeah. which which was very early in his career. It was him with Jules Holland, actually. Yeah. Um, even then, him stood on stage, Jules Holland, um, and I think it was it Bill Wyman was playing. Bill Wyman. Bill on, Wyman was playing the guitar. Yeah. I, I, obviously, I I encourage everybody to watch the clip on YouTube because Bill Wyman stood there like, "What's going off? I really don't know. I have no idea." And yet, Rick is like, "You're on stage with me." Yeah, and he loves it. And that last part of the song, he's stretching it out and enjoying himself. He's not hurrying up. He's not going to make way for the next person. This is his moment. You can see him basking in it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. He knew how to work a stage. He knew how to work a crowd. He knew how to work an individual as well. And a camera. That thing that came out and it was passed around a lot again at the time of his death where I think he was at like a wedding or some sort of function and a camera had found his face in a crowd and he realised he's being watched. He just flirts with the camera outrageously. Yeah. But it's gorgeous. Yeah, absolutely. He he just knew 
how to make everybody laugh. He knew when the camera was on him. He knew where to stand, what to do as well. However, interestingly, when he was making Bottom, he was always very nervous about, the, was he at his best? Right. Was he always at his best? I think because Bottom really was his and AIDS' big project, really. Because, you know, The Young Ones was obviously Lisa Mayer and Ben Elton as well, and, and the guys who were acting in it as well, Nigel Plano, Christopher Ryan, Alexis Sale. So it kind of had that group to hide behind a bit. But with Bottom... But they loomed large, those two, didn't they, really? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. But I think Bottom, because it's their defining piece of work, and certainly I would say Rick's defining piece of work for my generation... Um, I, I think he was very nervous about how it went down. You know, people said he would he would get really, really nervous before any take at all. And you think, that doesn't sound like him. But at the same time, I can understand because he was a master of comedy. He wanted everything to be right. You know, he absolutely adored Laurel and Hardy. He loved Tony Hancock. He hated um, the what I guess you would call end-of-peer comedians, you yeah. know, the, the my mother-in-law joke people. He hated them because it was all so safe and, and just easy. And he was an alternative comedian, let's not forget that. Yeah. And yet he broke through to the mainstream. And what you're talking about there with the traditional way of doing comedy and those references to Laurel and Hardy and, um, and uh, Tony Hancock, the side-eye to camera, those kind of break... those moments where it's just you and him... Mm. That's part of the allure, isn't it, for the viewer? Yes, absolutely, because it feels like... He knows that I know. Yeah, exactly, and it feels like he's only connecting with you as well. Like, because, I, I mean, we were talking just off-air before we started about the bottom live tours. Yes. And granted, you're sat in the audience with about two or 3,000 other people, and yet there are moments in those shows, even when you re-watch it on DVD, where you think, I think he's only talking to me now. Yeah. And you're, you're, how does somebody managed to get that good at doing something where it feels like you're only talking to one person. Yeah, it's crazy, isn't it? Very intimate. Do you think it... Well, we were talking about the, the females lining up afterwards, but it is a mostly male thing with Rick Mail, isn't it? Um, what, in like terms a, of fans? A, and sort of reaching out and, and kind of identifying with that 14-year-old boy that you were. Yes, I would say so. Um... I mean, it's not a bad thing no. at all, but I think it is very much geared towards male slapstick, you know, frying pan in the face, that's funny, trapping the head in the fridge or something. You know, we don't advocate those at all, but they're very funny. Yeah, and you know it's too big to be real as well, a lot of that stuff. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they always said it was like a real-life Tom and Jerry cartoon, and it is, yeah. it really is. You know, they're an old married couple in Bottom and it's Tom and Jerry. Um, but I think it certainly chimes a lot more with male than females, I think also because there wasn't that many females who he worked with. You know, you think about the comic strip, and obviously worked with uh, Dawn French and Jennifer Saunders, and, and there was a few others in there, but they, they weren't in all of those episodes at all. And you think back to the young ones, not that many females in their bottom, not that many females either, uh, Filthy Rich and Cat Flap, nothing like that mm -hmm. either. I mean, really, when you think about it, probably the most work he ever did... Um, with a female all in one go was probably Drop, Drop Dead, Fred. Dead Fred. Yeah, with Phoebe Cates, which is a very different actress than what you would expect him to work with. But it worked. It didn't work at the time. I mean, it was... No, I remember it coming out and people going, mm. but it's a lot of people's favourite film. Oh, here's the thing. I've been doing uh, these Skype Q&As with the Alamo Drafthouse in the US over the past few weeks. They've been selling out. 
all of them have been selling out because people don't see these film, this film on the big screen enough and people absolutely adore this film now. I think because certainly when probably you and I were growing up and we first saw it, we yeah. were like, look, we love the slapstick, we love the fact that he's rubbing poo in the mum's carpet and saying nasty words to the mum. You're like, this is really good fun, this is... And then when you watch it again as an adult, you appreciate it for so many other things it's now studied as the number one film about mental health in california like there's a whole research department that uses this film once a year to explain to people who can't understand what adults go through who have imaginary friends and right. they show them drop dead fred and you see this film lives on in such a big legacy it really does He's so great though the the face he had the fact that he didn't have to do it seemed like he wasn't doing very much but in fact he was working and manipulating the audience all the time. Yeah. I remember him primarily, I and mean, we talk about, you know, uh, bottom and stuff, and I do feel like that was more kind of aimed at a young daft lads when I was a young daft Thank girl. You. Do you Thank know what you. I mean? <laughs> <laughs> and I was into it too, but I wasn't a massively girly girl, do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But uh, Lord Flashheart, that was purely for the ladies, surely, wasn't it? <laughs> That was pure sex, that was. <laughs> and the thing is, to be honest with you, I think that was probably about 90 to 95% Rick. It's hilarious. To be honest, you know. And the thing is as well is, think about how often he is in Blackadder. Yeah. At least 10 minutes per per series. That's not a lot. Yet beyond, if, if somebody says to you Blackadder, you kind of instantly think about the relationship between Blackadder and Baldrick. Mm -hmm. But then the next thing, in the next instance, you think of Lord Flashheart, whether it is in the trenches or whether it is, uh, you know, when he turns up and he's wearing a dress or something. And you're like, wow, this is, he, he just oozed sex. Yeah. And he knew it. And all of the lines, you were like, ooh, this is raunchy stuff yeah. for a British BBC comedy, which, you know, is very funny comedy, don't get me wrong, but it felt, when you watch it back, it feels like Flashheart is completely in the wrong show, yeah. to be honest, but it works, that's the thing. But that's part of the thing. It's interesting you say that that was more more him than you'd seen in other roles because it did feel like he'd swoop in, take over, and everyone else kind of stood back because mm. he didn't know what he was going to do. And yeah. that kind of unconvention uh, unconventionality and the fact you didn't know what was going to happen next, that was part of his power, wasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, the thing is, when uh, he first appeared in Blackadder Series 2, it was, where he comes through the door, he bursts through the door and everything else like that, um, nobody knew what he was going to do. Nobody knew at all. They Basically, what had happened is they'd said something and it, he, when they were practising it before cameras were rolling, Rick was a little bit lethargic and, you know, oh, yeah, I'm going it done. And it was, it was, it was Rick Mail, but it wasn't the Rick Mail, the, the action, the sex, the adventure and everything. And then when cameras were rolling, he did everything that you see in the actual show. And what you get is a natural reaction from, if you look at Stephen Fry in that clip, Stephen Fry stood back with a huge smile on his face because he already knows what Rick's like anyway because he's worked <laughs> with him. But there's others looking back, like Miranda Richardson, who's like, whoa, what are we experiencing <laughs> here? You know, and I think... Maybe Rowan Atkinson was possibly a little bit annoyed about yeah, it all. because it was his vehicle, but Flashheart mm. just takes over. Yeah, absolutely. There's no other way of doing it. I mean, I can't imagine another comedic actor playing that now at all. Or even if, how would you play it? No. Beyond... Because for anyone else to do that, it would be too much. 
Yeah, that's very true. But for Rick, it just felt normal. Yeah. It felt... Here's Rick doing his thing. Everyone stand back and uh, and, and worship at the altar of <laughs> madness. But there was a mad f- flash in his eye, wasn't there? Yeah. So people would kind of back up a little bit and let him do his thing. Yeah, I mean, he certainly had those moments, flights of fancy, that sometimes didn't work. But it didn't matter because what came next did work. Yeah. That's the thing. Um, he, Him and Aid, when they were writing, they very much liked the, uh, the power of three jokes. So, you know, you would have one joke, then the next one would be bigger and then the next one would be huge. So you'd have, ha, 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 ha. And then you would have the huge belly laugh. However, there's times in Bottom, and I've written it in the book, where they go for five wow. in a row. And I'm talking about like the moments where they're talking about um, pin the tail on a donkey and they go, well, we haven't got a tail. They go, well, sellotape on a donkey. And they go, well, we haven't got a donkey. You know, and it ends up being put a bit of sellotape on the fridge. But they go through this entire list and each one gets bigger and bigger. And having spoken to loads and loads of people who who worked with Rick and who wrote with Rick as well, he would always say, come on, there's got to be something funnier than what we've already got. Now, that's a man who knows comedy. Yeah. Really knows comedy. That's someone who's secure. They also used to do this thing, which I think is brave and annoying and brilliant at the same time, which is do the joke, do it again, do it again till it stops being funny, then carry on doing it so it's annoying, then d- keep doing it so it becomes funny again. Yeah. Now that takes that takes some confidence as well, doesn't oh, it? Oh, absolutely, yeah. I, I think that's the thing, is that, as we said, he oozed confidence. Um, I spoke to Jeffrey Sachs, who was one of the directors for The New Statesman, and in the script for this episode of New Statesman, um, there was this scene, and it basically said uh, that there's one joke in this... It's probably about three minutes, this scene, if that, and there's one joke, a really big joke, right at the end, and Rick turned around to him and he said... I think I can get three jokes on this. He said, the first joke will be when uh, Piers Fletcher Dervish said something and he said, I'm not going to react instantly. I'm just going to stare out the window and my eyes are going to get wide. He said, that's joke. That's laugh number one. He said, then that he'll say something else. And he said, I'll slowly turn. He said, that's laugh number two. And he said, then the third one, I will do something massive. And he said, that is laugh number three. And he got all of those in the first take. Oh, God, I love him so much. We'll talk more in just a second. We'll take a quick break. If you want to give us a ring, you can do, because I know a lot of you worship at the altar of Rick Mayle, and I can't blame you for it. 0344 499 1000 is the number. That's 0344 499 1000. You're listening to Talk Radio. I'm Catherine Boyle. Late Night with Catherine Boyle on Talk Radio. Just me and Mark Serby talking about Rick Mail. He's written a new book called Comedy Genius, Rick Mail. It's got a lovely picture of uh, Rick on the front flicking the Vs and a very lovely picture of him on the back all beardy with a, with a fag on the go. Just this this man, it would appear, can do no wrong. Everyone kind of loves Rick Mail. Yeah. Um, talk to me about how um, Richard became Rick. Is that <laughs> the title of one of your sections? In yeah, here? it is. It's the early years chapter, basically, and how he was born in Matchintai, which is this lovely quaint village in Essex, um, and then moved very early on um, over to Worcester. And basically, uh, his his parents were teachers, and his dad was a drama teacher, and that's how he started to get into it. So very early on, he was he was on stage um, singing Christmas carols. And the teacher turned around to him and said, listen, you can't sing. Stop drowning out everybody with your appalling voice. Wow. Just stand there and mime the words. However, even at the young age, he knew, hang on, they're not looking at me anymore. So what he did is he mimed the words really loud, so like over, overly elaborated with his mouth, then started to wiggle his bottom as well. And everybody was laughing at him. So the teacher took him off stage and put him in the corner. And then, if that wasn't bad enough, he continued to wiggle his bottom in the corner. 
So people were just looking at him in the corner instead of what was going on stage. So, I mean, that's that was when he was in primary school. Mm-hmm. So you can only imagine how it got more and more, it's just in terms of going from Richard to Rick. But he he was in his dad's production of Waiting for Godot, which he eventually went on to play with Aid Edmondson in the West End. Mm-hmm. Um, so he was in that. He'd done a couple of other plays. He'd done a Bertolt Breck play as well. Um, and then when he went to Manchester, which actually he failed uh, most of his O-levels, and he got in through the clearing system rather than anything else. So he was quite lucky to go to Manchester. That's where he met uh, Ben Elton and Lisa Mayer. But that was in the second year. The first year, he, jo- he joined a comedy troupe called 20th Century Coyote, which was set up by his friend Lloyd Peters. Right. And it also had his other friends in there, Mark Jewison as well, uh, Mike Redfern. And they just went off and, and started to do comedy. Um, but at the time, it wasn't called stand-up comedy. No, stand-up comedy wasn't a word in the 70s. It was called cabaret or alternative cabaret so they would go and do these strange almost monty python-esque sketches at uh, the band on the wall place in manchester but they would do it at lunch times because that's the only time they could get in there as well and they were just doing it for the love of it and slowly they developed their act now the name changed from richard to rick now we're not too sure when this happened or how it happened mm-hmm. either uh, one of the stories is that he loved uh, the cartoon stories of eric the viking Right. The other one is that there was a young boy at school who was called Rick who seemed to be getting all the women. Now, I know which one I'm going to go with, to be honest with you. I really do. Um, So by the time he was at Manchester, it had gone from Richard to Rick. And then him and, and then... Later on in that same year, Aid Edmondson came into 20th Century Coyote. And uh, I've got a wonderful quote in the book where uh, Adrian Edmondson had told somebody years, years later that uh, Rick was trying to get him into this into 20th Century Coyote. And he said, you know, you come down, you're really cool, you're a proper actor. Because Adrian Edmondson wanted to be a real actor. I mean, he is now, obviously yeah, a very theatrical actor now. Um, but he wanted to be a real actor. And uh, Adrian Edmondson said to him, I'm only going to do it if you give me a contract. So Rick wrote a contract out there that said, join 20th, it was something like, join 20th Century Coyote. I promise it will be horrible and all terrible and la da Rick Mail. And he said and he was true to his word. That's exactly how they started, 20th Century Coyote. They started to sort of pull away and Lloyd Peters, who was the co-founder, oh, who was the founder of 20th Century Coyote, went off to do some drama stuff. He, he did Boys in the Black stuff. So he was off doing drama with uh, Mike Lee. And people that's like heavy, that. heavy drama. It's a big change as well considering yeah. you're going from doing Monty Python yeah. star routines being daft in pubs yeah yeah to going and working with people like that so he'd left and Rick and Aid had said do you mind if we keep the name 20th Century Coyote and that's when it started they started to develop they went up to Man- uh, up to Edinburgh to do the Fringe and one of the first plays was called Death on a Toilet <laughs> which um, was uh, Edmondson stuck on the toilet and Rick playing God and talking to him. Oh, my God. There was another one uh, where it was called uh, God's Testicles, where they both had bought sleeping bags and hung them in the rafters and and sat in them and talked to each other as God's Testicles. All right, OK. So they played right and left, basically. I don't know who was right or who was left, I'll be honest. <laughs> Tell me about their friendship, their, their relationship. Was it as cosy and fun as it would appear from their work? Or? Yeah, absolutely. They... You know, when Rick died, Aid put out a statement that said, never did I laugh as much as I did working with Rick. And all of the people who I spoke to said them two together, would they'd be like their own little clique in that they would just laugh at things that made no sense as well. But that came through in their writing, mm. that all of the things that they found funny, they put into the 
script and hoped people would find funny and hoped everybody had got the same sense of humour. Fortunately, we had, and it worked brilliantly. But their relationship was, well, you know, it, it was probably more than brothers, to be honest. And when you spend 30-odd years with each other, working day in, day out, and knowing each other's routines, the, you know, it's the, there's nothing else there but to say... They, they loved each other, really, when yeah. they were working. That's the answer I hoped you'd give. Because yeah. the, if it, that comes through, doesn't it, in the work? You, yeah, absolutely. And all the different permutations throughout, you know, as they got older together, mm. there can't have been... There can't have been rivalry or ego in that because they seem to choose to be together a lot more than, than not. They did up to a certain point and then they split. Um, Rick wanted to do some more bottom and... Uh, Adrian Edmondson didn't. He, right. he decided to go off, and they they didn't work together for a long, long time. And then, uh, just before the end, they were, there was sort of a little bit of talk of, of doing bits and bobs. But yeah, they they just basically stopped. The last time they were together on television was you may remember this. Adrian Edmondson did like it was. Comic relief or stand up to cancer or something, where they would get celebrities to do um, famous dance numbers. Oh yeah, and he did um, Swan Lake, was it or something? I'm trying to think now. And he had a tutu on and everything. And basically, it finished with Rick dropping something on his head. It's Let's Dance for Comic Relief. Thank you. Ian was on that episode. Oh, was he? Yeah, because he said that's the time he briefly met Rick Mail. There we go. So that was it. That was the last time they ever worked together. Gosh, really? That was a yeah, while ago. Yeah, and then they split and, you know, the comedy world lost a great team, yeah. to be honest. Um, and they went off and did other bits. You know, and the thing is, separately, they did really good other bits as well. And the, the tragedy of the fact that Rick is no longer alive with us is that we were getting a Rick Nasons with Man Down. And he was doing some of his best work. I mean, Man Down on TV, for those who haven't seen it, I actively encourage everybody to see it because even though he's in it briefly, it's the old Rick mm. jumping over a car boot or, you know, throwing water at Greg Davis. Yeah, he's his dad in that, isn't he, or something? Yeah, and, I mean, to be fair, he looks like him. <laughs> and that that was part of the casting, is that when Greg Davis was writing it, he's like, well, who do I get to play my dad? And everybody was saying, you've got to uh, get Rick. Now you've you're got talking to get about Rick. it. It's the faces as well that he does. Yeah. So, you know, you had that, and then he had done some other bits as well. Like, obviously, we may touch on it, the, the quad bike accident in 98. After that, he wasn't on TV for a long time, but he was doing uh, podcasts, audio recordings, audio books, etc. And he'd done some great stuff in his later years. Like, there's some stuff out there that I actively encourage people to listen to, like Cutie and the Sofa Guard is, is a really interesting piece that um, is basically the story of a man who buys a sofa and it comes with an armed guard. And the armed guard only leaves when he thinks you understand how great the sofa is. And it's Rick. It's fantastic. And there's a, uh, there's some twins in there called the Wisdom Twins and he, he does both of them. They're absolutely brilliant. We can't play a clip at all. There's no way we can. Um, and then just imagine. Just imagine just, Rick Mail. Yes, please do. Yes, with lots of swear words <laughs> in. Um, and then he also did a, a great uh, series called The Last Hurrah, which he always said was his last great piece of work and he said it was for the fans and basically it's the story of an immortal snowman reciting his life to a journalist while he sat in a gentleman's club swigging sherry and munching on prawns and it's every bit as hilarious as you can imagine it to be 
Oh, you're making me want to have a proper Nick Rail Nick Rick Mail uh, binge fest this weekend. I know what I'm going to be doing. I won't be going out. Cleo's on the phone. Hey, Cleo. Hello. Hello. What do you want to say? I don't know, I don't know if you mentioned while I've been sitting getting through, but uh, when he did George's Marvelous Medicine on oh, Jack Norrie. Oh God, that was a massive influence on me and my sister. And uh, unfortunately, for my mum's bathroom, we did reenact quite a lot of that. It was brilliant, wasn't it? It was great. Absolutely amazing. Yeah, how did that come about, do you know? Uh, well, obviously, he's such a great storyteller that they ju they just asked him to do it. And then it was the one that got the most complaints ever. Yeah. And he wasn't invited back for years. Wow, Years really? and years, yeah. Because ultimately, it was encouraging children to do what you did. Yeah, we did. Yeah. And parents were not happy with that. I mean, that's a that's a really good uh, moment there on Jack and Ori. I think it made Jack and Ori. Jack and Ori was always boring, wasn't it, Cleo? There was him, Cribbins, and uh, what's his face? Kenneth Williams, who really, you yeah, ever really just like remembered from watching yeah. that stuff because it was just like, ah. Uh, but when he did it, I, I, I think it was just, it was sort of after the last, was it the last series of The Young Ones or the Between the Two? It was Between the Two. Was it? Because I remember the first series. The other ones, I was too young to understand what was going on, but I knew it was funny. And I loved Viv, because as a kid, like, he's bashing things and going through walls and screaming and burning things down. So I, I loved him. But by the time the second series came around, I was like, I want to be Rick, because Rick was just so funny. Because <laughs> I've always been, like, obsessed with comedy and stuff, even as a little kid, and I was like, hey, just... So all, his, all through his career, I just got so bloody obsessed with him. He's brilliant. And the stuff in bottom, it's like, like people just think of it as the no gag stuff, and uh, but watching it, it's the stuff you know, it's the stuff you're not focusing on, like in the background. Um, there's always something going on. So if you watch it, it's, it's like watching. There's elements of uh, Python in there, but there's elements of a lot of elements of uh, Tory Hancock. Yeah. The, the despair and the, all that stuff, the depression stuff, and there's bits of stepdaughter son in there, and it's just, it's just amazingly written. And like people just think, oh, it's all fart jokes, knob gags, and it, and it is to an extent. Yeah. But I think with that that's a front, because when you watch them acting together, whether Eddie's at front at the front of the, the screen doing his bit, you've got to watch Rick in the background acting, and vice versa. Every time Rick's in the foreground. You have to keep your eye on Eddie because he's hilarious. Just the reactions and the the stupidness. So when he died, I was mortified. Yeah. And then... I've spoken to a lot of people who said, I was excessively upset about someone I was never going to meet oh, and never had met, but it was someone that was already part of your life. It tore me a bit. And then Robin Williams died a couple of months later. I think that was it. I think Rick died in June... Robin Williams, Robin Williams was the August of 2014. And I've told Cathy's, but you don't know this, I died for a bit. And I was in, in a coma in September. So what I did when I came out, because I can't remember a thing about it, but when people said, hey, what was it like? What was, what was it like in the coma? I just said, oh, just to have a jog. I said, I used to, I used to knock around with Rick Mail and uh, Robin <laughs> Williams. Just, just oh, you wouldn't have come back. <laughs> that yeah, was yeah, true. I was kinda, but I was like, oh... It was, a, it was a tough summer for comedy fans, that. Yeah, yeah. 
It was so sad. It was too young to go. Thanks, Cleo. Nice to speak to you. 03444991000. I mean, people have got a real place in their heart for Rick, haven't they? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was hoping we weren't going to bring it up about him tragically passing, but we do have to touch on it. Yeah. And the thing is, what what was uh, everybody noticed is the fact that Rick, an alternative comedian, was on every front page of a newspaper. He was the first thing on every news. An alternative comedian. Now think about it. When was the last time you had an alternative whatever on the front pages of when they died? The only other person I can think of would be David Bowie. Yeah. But Rick was on the front page of everything. It wasn't just one day either. It continued throughout the week that there was eulogies there and then it was here's the best bits and everything. And there was like seven page spreads in papers of like here's the best bits. That's an alternative comedian, but that shows you how universally loved he was, how much of a pioneer he was, how much of a genius he was. You know, that's why I've called the book Comedy Genius, and that's why I argue in the book very early on why he really was a genius. You know, we all know that the word genius is overused these days. You hear it all the time. That's genius. That's genius. It's not genius. It's just funny. But Rick really was a genius, and that's why I've argued that he is in it. And I think when... We all heard the news. We, we, I think we probably all did a double check take yeah. of, no, no, he, it, it, no, he's already survived death once on the quad bike. You know, I mean, he was dead longer than uh, than Jesus, and obviously he told everybody about it, um, and that was the beauty of it. That why would you come knocking again? Yeah, that was the thing. All his performances that I can think of, the ones that that most people know. He's a force of nature. He's full of life. He's yeah. got too much life, if anything. He's bouncing off the walls and making yeah. everyone else stand back. So for him to go in his 50s, no one could believe it, could they? No, absolutely not. That's the thing. And as I said, we were getting the Rick Nasons. You know, we just had the first series of Man Down. Everybody was like, Rick's back. Rick's yeah. back, baby. And he's on Channel 4 as well, so he's got that, that slight edge to him I was as say, well. How could he still be that cool in his 50s? He was, though. He could, it, it didn't matter. He was cool, whatever. That yeah. was the thing. You know, he could have been cool. It, you know, well, I mean, he makes jokes of it all the time, even in all the shows that, you know, he was just cool. Yeah. That was the thing. That speech he gave as well. And, the, and it, it kind of went into the internet age and he went viral with a number of things. But the speech he gave at the university when, when he, he was, got the doctorate. Yeah. 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 One, of the, one of the most emotional moments. And the thing is, he everything he says there um, is absolutely brilliant. It's his mantras for life. And you just watch it and you go, he's absolutely bang on the money with every single thing that he's saying. And this is a man who never really, you know, he didn't really work, like, he didn't work in a shop, he didn't work in a factory or anything else like that. He was just in entertainment. So he didn't really have the day-to-day grind of life. But with those mantras that he was talking about, you're like, this is, he's talking to me. Mm. And I'm working the nine to five here, but I get everything he's saying he was such a smart man. Tell you what, January being January and everyone being a bit glum, if you get time, Google it, uh, dear listener, and have a listen to that because there'll be something in it for you, I swear. Uh, and I'm definitely going to have a listen to that tonight as I'm going home. Um, we were talking earlier off air about how it looked like he had a charmed life and it looked like everything was so effortless, but he had failed and he, ha- he wasn't afraid to fail. He, w- he was willing to try things and keep trying, and the failures kind of made the successes, didn't they? Yeah, I think so. There's a lot uh, that I watched or listened to for the book where I'm like, this is not good. This is not good stuff at all. But that helped. 
that helped him a lot mm-hmm. because he started to develop things and and sort of kickbacks as well where he was like I'm not going to do anything else like that it really didn't resonate what would you say were the main ones that sort of jumped out at you uh, there's a film called Just for the Record, which is uh, a British film that was all about the internal workings of the music industry. It should have been great. Yeah. It should have been really interesting. Um, and it was terrible, absolutely horrendous. It really was. Um, th- there's other bits out there as well. Like he, he'd done a couple of other um, early horror bits as well. And you kind of think, Rick in a horror film doesn't really work. I have to say, actually... Later on in life, he did a film called Errors of the Human Body, which was a horror film. Uh, I think it was a German horror film, actually. And he's really good in it. Like he's this, Is it, it playing it straight? Playing or? it straight, yeah. And he's the scientist in it. Um, but he's playing it straight and he's very good in that. But there were earlier things that really didn't work at all. There were some Hollywood movies that didn't work as well. He went to Canada to make a film with Leslie Nielsen that was absolutely terrible. Um, very early on in his career, he went off to Hollywood to make a film called Little Noises with... Um, Tatum O'Neill. Right. And it's just a strange piece of work. It's a very independent piece of work, uh, but it it doesn't work because Rick turns up and is sort of 50% of Rick Mayle, but he's opposite these other real established actors in Hollywood. And he's just like, this is night and day. This is not working at all. And I think possibly maybe that put him off seeking fame and fortune in the US for quite a bit until Drop Dead Fred really. He should have been massive in Hollywood. Why not? Why didn't it kick why didn't it kick in for him? I just think he loved Britain. I just think he loved it here. Cuz he could have been Ricky Gervais, couldn't he? Yes, absolutely. He could have taken over. Yeah, and there were times where his agent was taking phone calls all over the place and he was just being offered telephone numbers. That's what I was told. Direct quote there as well. Telephone numbers. And yet he didn't want to do it. He was very much a family man though. He loved the family. Absolutely love the family and I can imagine that being away from the family for however long it is to film, you know, mm-hmm. it's well, it's going to be more than eight weeks, you're probably talking about three months, probably wouldn't sit right with him, you know, it's not... I couldn't imagine him doing that, you know, I couldn't imagine him being on the treadmill of big blockbuster films, even though he should be, as you rightly point out, he should have been massive, but it didn't really work out. But thankfully now the cult that is Drop Dead Fred is bigger than ever. Uh, It's just so tragic that it happens after the fact, though, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I think the good thing is that before he died, I think it started to come back round again and people were appreciating it uh, for for more than what they initially saw for it. But now it's so huge. It's so huge. I mean, I'd be interested to know, because you do a family film club, don't you, with your kids. I'd love to know what your kids think to that film. I'm going to show it to them this weekend. Because it's such. it would be such a different film... In their eyes, compared to yours now, because yeah, I showed them that that song we played at the beginning that you did with Jules Holland, um, "I Am Evil." My eight-year-old found it hilarious. I mean, just because of the mention of bums and not wiping your bum and all that <laughs> stuff, it's the naughtiest thing she's ever seen. I think she'd love it. Yeah, she thinks she would love it. Or they'll be terrified by it because he's so out of control. You know. Yeah, absolutely. There are terrifying moments yeah. in that film. It's probably jump scares and. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, him sinking the houseboat in it. It's a huge moment, quite a scary moment. Um, I think they'll love it, but I do think you're going to hear a lot more about Drop Dead Fred from your kids yeah. afterwards, which will be great. Right. But... I, I'm glad you've said that, because I've been looking at something new to show them, because they will watch the same things over and over, which is why I started this film club thing. I was like, right, now we're going to watch something that I think will be good for you. And yeah. nine times out of ten, they agree. Sometimes it doesn't really kick in. Some of the older films are a bit slow for my kids. I don't know. 
The thing is with Drop Dead Fred is that Rick doesn't turn up for about 10 or 15 minutes. Right. And when you come at it as an adult, you're like, right, come on, where's Rick? Where's Rick? Phoebe Cates, now get her, get her <laughs> off, get her off. We need more Rick, we need more Rick. And then he comes on like a whirlwind and then he sort of disappears for a little bit. Yeah. And you go, where's Rick? Stop all this lovey-dovey nonsense with Phoebe Cates. We want Rick back on again. And then yeah. fortunately he turns up and hits her with a shovel or something. And you're like, okay, right, it's fine now. He's here all the way through. But there's moments in that film, like the moment where he slides under uh, the mother's... Uh, legs and looks up the dress and goes, oh, cobwebs. Oh, my God. Yeah, like, you're thinking, <laughs> OK, um, that's an interesting idea there. And it's funny in yeah. the moment, but when you watch it as an adult, you're like, oh, this, uh, this is a bit too far still to Still my honest. kids would find it hilarious. Yeah, I mean, I think it's still hilarious, to be honest with you. I only saw it the other week and I'm like, that's really funny. But <laughs> but part of my brain is going, oh, that's a bit normal. It doesn't now. stand up Yeah, either. that's not working, I've got to say. Let's take another little break, but I could talk about Rick Mail all night, turns out. 03444991000 is the phone number to call if you want to join in. But otherwise, we're just going to carry on loving this. Uh, this is Talk Radio. I'm Catherine Boyle. And Sam, you are about to press online on DAB and on the talk radio app talk radio late night with Catherine Boyle on talk radio just talking about the gorgeousness that is uh, Rick Mayle and talking about you know the, you hear this the phrase men want to be him women want to be with him I think some men wanted to be with him as well to be honest I don't blame them charm 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 and he was good friends with someone else who you could say that about Alan Rickman yes he was good friends with him yeah because they were in a film together which film was that? They were in uh, what turned out to be uh, I'm trying to think of what it's called now Churchill the Hollywood years oh my god yeah, it's a decent film. It's okay. It's fine. You know, yeah. it's, it's worth seeking out. It's got Christian Slater in it, and it's quite fun. But yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, doesn't Christian Slater play Churchill? Uh, is he? Yeah, Churchill, the the younger years. So it's kind of like it's kind of like Maverick, yeah. basically. Um, and then they've got it's surrounded by this huge British cast, but it's directed by Peter Richardson, who did the comic strip presents. Right. So it's in a, essentially it is a comic strip presents film. But not many people are aware of it. Right. But yeah, I think that's where they met. They might have met before, but they they really got on together. There's a picture on the internet of them two at the premiere, and they are just somebody has said something funny, and Rick is laughing, and Alan's just doing that. You know that sort of look that he had, which was brilliant, where he was just like, oh, and you're like, oh, I'd love to have been a fly on the wall with these two, yeah, because I get the feeling they they just laughed and laughed and laughed, and yet. You kind of don't think that they would get on, really. No, because you assume that Alan Rickman would have been rather dry and maybe Rick would have been too silly, but, you know, you never know people, do you, really? This is the thing, yeah. And it, it clearly, Rick was a... He got love from everybody. Yeah. That's the thing. Everybody. Just everybody. Nobody has got a bad story about Rick Mail. I'm sorry, they just don't. And if they do, don't bring it round here. We're not interested. <laughs> That's the point, isn't it? People yeah. don't want to hear it. Yeah, you can imagine somebody go, yeah, I've got this story about... In fact, there's one online where somebody was interviewing him and apparently Rick was in a bad mood and he put the phone down and I read it and I'm thinking, well, maybe it was you, mate. Yeah. Maybe it was you. Considering that you're the only one saying anything negative. Yeah, exactly. You would yeah. suggest that. I was half tempted to tweet him and say, it's probably you, mate. <laughs> But then you probably find out why. Uh, also, you t we were talking off air about how um, Rick kind of 
There would be things that he didn't want to talk about, right? And if he didn't want to talk about it, there was no way you were going to get him onto it. That mm. Australian interview you were telling me about... Oh, yeah. ..where he was sitting with Ben Elton? Yeah, he was sat with Ben Elton. This was early when they went out on tour in Australia because Rick was loved in Australia, absolutely loved, and they went out there a few times as well. Um, and this was the time when they went out there, and this is when Ben Elton met his wife, oh, now right. wife, on this tour. You wouldn't um, think he'd have a chance with Rick there. There you go, you see. <laughs> Rick was elsewhere, I imagine. But <laughs> somebody had sat them down and basically the, the entire idea of the, the interview was the fact that, right, tell us about the machinations of comedy, of your comedy. And Ben Elton sat there and, as he does, you know, he's, he's talking at length about these things and talking whatever else. And then Rick is just sat there. He's got this hat on, this weird hat. But all he's doing is he's doing that ear thing where he folds his ear into his own ear canal and then it pops out. Right. And he just keeps doing this all the way through the interview. And you can tell that at some point Ben Elton's like, are you going to chime in or not? And Rick's like, no, I'm You're just going to sit here and do my ear thing. He's in the corner wiggling his bum like he was when he was a kid. That's exactly the thing, isn't it? Yes, yes, absolutely. He would much rather be out there making childish movements or something yeah. than, than actually giving away the secrets. I'm not going to explain to you how I do it, just enjoy the fact that I'm doing it. Yeah, I'm not going to show you behind the curtain, basically. Yeah. I'm going also, to show you. Who cares, really? If you've got Rick Mail standing in front of you, you want him to do the Rick Mail stuff, sure. It's true. I mean, I love to hear from film directors about certain films. You know, I'll happily listen to Quentin Tarantino for hours on end about how he shoots certain things on, like, you know, Panavision or something. And I'm like, yeah, this is great. But Oh, and you know he'll love that as well. Yeah, exactly. This is is the thing like give me nine hours with Tarantino it's not enough but with Rick I'd be like no I listen just do the stuff just just be you and you tell know tell me the stories in your way yes exactly you know tell me the stories of how you uh died for longer than Christ <laughs> <laughs> which he told everybody he told everybody I mean it was his opening line the first time he met Gwyneth Powell who played his wife in Man Down. He was like, hi, I'm Rick. Uh, I was long. I was dead longer than Jesus. <laughs> There's no comeback from that, though, is the, there? There is. The, how do you come back from something like that? You know, she's like, well, I was Mrs McCluskey in Grange Hill. And you're like, I mean, to anybody else, it would be like, that's a pretty good role, actually. Yeah. But you're with Rick Mail. Yeah. No. Oh, what a shame. We did mention, I know we don't really like to go into the negative, but you did say, and I know you've written a book about Pacino because we've spoken about that before, mm. And there's a similar thing going on in some of Rick Mayo's roles. You say you feel like he's a bit behind the eyes. You can see he's doing it for the money. Um, I think they got to a point where maybe it did feel that there were certain projects that he was just doing because it got to a point where nobody was offering him comedy. Right. Because you know how people come in and out of fashion, as is always the way. I think it got to a point where people were possibly sick of Rick Mail, you know, the skits and everything. Yeah. And I'm doing he... a show, and it's not a Rick Mail show, so he can't be in it. Yeah, exactly. Um, what? Why would we have Rick Mail in a Rick Mail show? It seems pointless. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think there are projects out there that he did, and you can see them where you just think. Yeah, this is not what he should have been doing at all. I mean, the thing is as well, he was doing these shows and being paid for it, but at the same time, behind the scenes, he was storing that money up and trying to do his own things right. as well. Okay, so, so that was the reason. So he was trying to do bits and bobs uh, like that, but at the same time, there's a lot out there where you're like, this is not great. This is not even good. This is not even average. Mm -hmm. This is quite bad. What do you reckon then? Too tight a leash? Um, that's a good question. I... It's probably a number of things, to be honest. Uh, yeah, probably too tight a leash. If you're going to have Rick Mail, you've got to have Rick Mail doing something. It takes a brave person to turn around to Rick Mail and say, we don't want you to play it like this. We actually want you to play it straight. 
it happens a couple of times. As I said, that uh, film Errors of the Human Body, which is a horror film, where he plays it straight, he's really good in that. And it takes somebody brave to turn around and say, well, actually, we want you to play it straight. We think mm-hmm. you can do it. And actually, he did straight roles. You know, you think about uh, Rick Mail Presents, the shows that he... Uh, the six episodes that he did for ITV, where he showed off his dramatic side. There was Dancing Queen, Mickey oh, I Love. I just about remember that. Yeah. I what mean, was that? Was that like a sort of Tales of the Unexpected type thing? Yeah, it was all co-written by Rick, but it was all just different stories completely. So Dancing Queen was him and Helena Bonham Carter, right. which was the best one of the lot. Uh, he had got drunk at his stag do and his mates had put him on a train to Scarborough and he was stranded in Scarborough with the stripper, which was Helena Bonham Carter. But there's a load of things going on in that film that are really interesting. But then he also did Mickey Love, which was about a TV presenter who was being pushed out by somebody young and hip and trendy. Um, There was Claire de Lune, which was this lovely story about him and his daughter trying to survive and he's a taxi driver and he takes in somebody to to take her to the airport, but it turns out that there's a darker side to this person as well. There's some really good... I mean, he did some really good stuff. Uh, but I think some of it passed people by because it was too dramatic. Yeah. You know, people and didn't realise that's what he, he could do and he was yeah, good at it. Yeah, absolutely. You think about the fact that he was in Jonathan Creek. Was he? Yeah. Blimey. Yeah, he was in two episodes. Yeah, and unsurprisingly, he stole both of those episodes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he was in The Bill yeah. as well. God. He was in loads of... There was, bits, there was a time where he would just pop up in things where you're like, why is Rick Mail in this? This is very odd, right. but, it, but it kind of works. Um, yeah, there's just odd bits. The more I think about Man Down, the more I think how brave it was of Greg to share a screen with him because you can't win, can you? No. You he didn't have to say anything. No, absolutely not. And uh, one of the directors I spoke to, he said, there's a scene in the first series where he has to throw a bucket of water over Greg when he's in the bed. Mm. And Rick was like, I'm just going to do it. He said, no, no, you, you've got to wait until I do the count because otherwise the, the cameras are not going to be... He said, no, no, I'm just going to do it. And he said, we got into a full-on slagging match about why he can't just do it, basically. He said, we went hell for leather at it. He said, so we set it all up and he goes, right, one, two, and then Rick throws the bucket of water. Of course before, he does. Of course he does. And he said, fortunately at this time, I'd already got the cameras rolling because I kind of knew and it worked really well because Greg's reaction that's in the show is actually what happened. Like, oh, I wasn't expecting that. And also Rick would have had a little bit of a fury behind him to propel that water through the air. Yeah, absolutely. Imagine. Yeah, that uh, anarchic side was still still there when he was filming Man Down. Good. Glad. So sadly missed. Um, how do people get hold of this book? Uh, it's available from all ebook providers, um, you know, good ones and bad ones as well. And if you want a physical copy, ooh we should say that. <laughs> we, we haven't done that tonight. Hey, how all. are you going to sign these? You've got a hard act to follow. Oh, that's a good point, actually. I have been signing a few, I have to say. and put Love and, and violence. <laughs> I've been trying to think of really good lines and I've been putting bottom quotes in some of them and then I'm thinking... I hope they get the quote. Otherwise, I've just put you vast slug in it for no reason. Um, <laughs> They'll get it. They'll yeah. get it. Um, but yeah, if you want a physical copy, which got all the pictures in it, it's currently available on lulu.com, which is a print-on-demand service. Brilliant. So yes. Uh, can I tell one story just quickly? We're kind of out of time. Okay, fine. You, tell you what, you can hang on and do one after the news. How okay, about just one story. That's can it. you stick around? We're yeah, not of course. Have... Yeah. All right, well, let's do that. Oh three four 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 nine nine one thousand. Jackie, I can see you've rung as well. We'll get a speech after the news. Late Night with Catherine Boyle on Talk Radio. Not just me, though. I'm here with Mark Serby, who's written a brilliant book about Rick Mail. Comedy Genius, it's called, and you can get it from all good online e-book retailers yes. and lulu.com, which yes. will print it out to, to order. Um, 
There was another story you wanted to tell us before you go. Yeah, uh, it's a brilliant story. I met Robert Llewellyn uh, from Red Dwarf fame uh, about 18 months ago and said to him, I'm writing this book about Rick, you know, and I know that you had sort of had a slight interaction with him. Um, Would you be interested in being interviewed? He said, oh, I can't do it now at the moment, uh, but, you know, let's exchange numbers. And it it didn't happen for whatever happened. Mm -hmm. But he told me a story there and then, and he said, when I was first starting in comedy, he said I, was, I joined a comedy troupe in Islington and he said our first gig was at uh, what is now the Academy Islington. And he said, oh. so for two weeks we practised this uh, piece where it was like singing and dancing numbers and jokes and whatever else. He said we practised and practised and practised till we got it down perfectly. And he said then on the night we did it, it was fantastic. He said it went so, so well. He said I was so pleased. He said and then in the next breath Rick walked on and said, right, who wants to see my penis? Oh, and he said it got a bigger laugh than our entire thing. And that is working with Rick Mayer. <laughs> now, the penis thing was was a bit of a, a motif, wasn't it, through a lot of his uh, yeah. live acts in particular. Yeah. He tells a story about going to see Bottom with his mum and he was too young to go and see it really, but it only kind of became obvious after the first 10 minutes and they there was a lot of swearing and, 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 and knob gags and, and an actual penis. Yeah. But his mum sort of went, well, we're here now. And you had a similar experience, didn't you? Yeah, yeah, the, the first Bottom... Uh, live show I went with my mom uh, and you know it was like we'd already seen Bottom uh, the first series we're like yeah this is really fun and then we went to see it and I think my mom was probably the same as Ian's mom where you're like well we're here now but the first moment when you see Rick on stage for that first live Bottom show he turns up and he's got a sex doll down his pants right okay. and you think <laughs> there's the tone uh, set okay I'm I'm just about 13 years old I'm not going to get any of these jokes at all but oh my <laughs> goodness it's hilarious isn't it Brilliant. let's have a quick word with Jackie who's been waiting very patiently. Hey, Jackie. Oh, hi, good evening, Kath. Now, just listening to the whole Rick Mail things, I've just been laughing my head off. My earliest memory of watching him on the telly, I don't know if you've mentioned it earlier on, was his Kevin Turvey. Oh, God, yeah. Oh, I can do it. I, I still do the impression. Go on, hello. let's hear it. Hello. hello, my name's Kevin Turvey. I'm an investigative reporter. <laughs> 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 he just got me from that moment with his spiky hair and he's sitting in the chair doing his his thing with that but Kevin Terry was the first thing and I was hooked from then on yeah I'd watch him in anything and you know from what yeah. Mark said some of it is a bit crappy but you'd still watch him because it's like spending yeah. a couple of hours in his company and he seems like great fun you know it was great yeah. fun I think you still get some of it on YouTube but you know just to go back and watch it again when he first came on and said that and I went Oh, this fellow's just brilliant. I just love him. I'm, I'm really looking forward to reading the book as well. I'm, I'm definitely going to look that up. Make sure you do. I'm going to have a, a read of it and I'm also going to have a look at his autobiography because I hadn't thought to read that for some yeah, reason. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I've never read that one. No, 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 I need to do that as well. I like I've got a homework sheet from tonight, yeah. <laughs> so have I now. <laughs> oh, lovely, lovely to hear about all the stories. Well, that's been a, it's been a really good uh, start to the evening. Oh, thanks very much, Jackie. You take care of yourself. Okay. Thanks for ringing. Bye-bye. 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 03444991000. And with that, I think we've got to close the old uh, curtains on the Rick Mail stuff. Oh, that just sounds... Oh, it's really sad, that's, isn't it? That's sad, Here's yeah. Here's the thing, right? You talk about all the brilliant things and so many people have got loads of brilliant memories of him, private things that they, he wrote in books. And uh, yeah. I remember there was a thing circulating again on Twitter about uh, someone had applied, uh, written to him and asked him to write a best man speech and he'd written, you know, that he, does, he was a lazy you-know-what and uh, he had no right to do any of this stuff and he was hilarious Just and, and told him to F off. But that's what people wanted. Yeah. A little bit of that. Irreverence. Yeah. yeah. Anarchy. Yeah, but who have we got now? Well, that's a very good point. There's a lot of T-shirt comedians out there, 
is what I would class them as. Yeah. They're all in T-shirts. They all do the same jokes. You're like, I, I literally could not pick most of them out in a lineup. But you think about alternative comedy and when Rick was around. And that's around, not us just being old farts, is it? I hope not. I'm I'm a youthful person. No, <laughs> no, but like you think about the time when Rick and Alexis Sale and Nigel Plano were coming through, and they were really aggressive, and they were really going for the jugular, not just for you know the the government, but in terms of comedy. Yeah. And if you went to see them, you were getting picked on. It didn't matter. Um, but it was also quite irreverent as well, and it was all new. And as I said at the time, people didn't classify it as stand up. It was alternative cabaret. It was a very different time. And we need comedians to push the boundaries yeah. and unfortunately... And do stuff that doesn't work necessarily. Yeah. Do, actually, do TV companies have the patience for that anymore? Probably not. Probably not. The thing is, though, you know, Filthy Rich and Catflap, that didn't work at the time. It was binned off after one series. Mm -hmm. But if you watch it now, it works now because basically Rick is playing a character who has no talent whatsoever but he's on TV. Now, is that not modern times? Yikes, yeah. Yeah. You know, and then there's the bouncer as well, which is Aid Edmondson, and then there's his agent as well, played by Nigel Planer as well. So, you know, I, I watch it now and I'm like, this is perfect for now. Yeah. It didn't work then, I can see why, but now Well, because people wanted Lord Flashheart or someone coming in pulling his pants down, didn't they? Well, we can get that as well, can't we? <laughs> Thankfully, we can. Well, that that, that, that catalogue is amazing. And I'm, I, as I say, that's a rabbit hole I'm about to go down and uh, in a big way. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Mark. And Thank you for, for having this. me. I love your obsessions. I love the fact that... Because we met through uh, your Pacino obsession. You yes. did a, You did a film night. I'd never seen that film before. Incredible. Incredible. Dog Day Afternoon. Dog Day Afternoon. Yeah. Completely unexpected. For that time, incredible. Yeah. Um, and, you know, your passion for films and for, for entertainment is something else. And I really appreciate your attention to detail. This is great. Can I keep it? <laughs> <laughs> yes, you can. Thank you very yes. much. I want you to write something really rude in the front of it for me as well for you, go. OK, I better do it off air, though. <laughs> Thanks very much. That's Mark Serby, his book Comedy Genius, available through all good e-book retailers. Make sure you get a copy. Oh, great mail. God, we all miss him, don't we? 0344 499 1000. Late Night with Catherine Boyle on Talk Radio.